Welcome to episode 186 with my guest Jimmy Doyle. This episode is sponsored by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And uh, if you would please support them by donating uh, at chicagowalk.org um, and help prevent suicide prevention. If you're in the Chicago area, uh, join them for an Out of the Darkness walk. And it's on September 20th. Details, donation, and registration information at chicagowalk.org. Support suicide prevention by giving a donation donation at chicagowalk.org. Again, that's chicagowalk.org. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. I'm Paul Gilmartin. No, I did that backwards. Let's plow forward. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist or an expert. I'm a jackass that tells dick jokes, and this is more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, read the forum, uh, read a guest blog or a blog by me, um, support the show, make a donation, um, take a survey, see how other people filled out surveys. Um, or as I like to say, sit at home with your thumb in your ass and go fuck yourself. Wow, that was harsh. That was unnecessary, Paul. Well, as you guys know, it has been a heartbreaking week for a lot of people. I would, uh, I would venture to say most, uh, most any moviegoer, um, whoever saw Robin Williams, um, God, the, the, you know, my first, I th- think the first movie that I was like, wow, this guy is amazing, was uh, The World According to Garp. It's just the vulnerability that he played in that. Um, I wanted to be him when I was 14 years old. I just, I never missed an episode of Mork and Mindy. It was, there was nothing else like it. It was... For those of you that are that are younger that didn't have a before and after idea of what his comedy was like when it came out, it was it was revolutionary. Uh, and yes, he he you could draw um, lineage to Jonathan Winters, um, who was brilliant and also suffered from mental illness. Um, there was just something really special about about Robin Williams and and he certainly left some wreckage in his past you know one of the things I think is fair to do when you eulogize somebody is to paint an accurate picture of them and uh, you know he he um, he did leave some wreckage in his past as we all do in our in our lives um, but everybody I know that knew him said he was just a really sweet humble gentleman and um you know, when when I heard the news, my, my first thought was sadness for how much pain he must have been in. And um, and then the irony that this person I wanted to be um, had had taken his own life. And, and then I didn't want to weigh in, I think, as I mentioned in the episode with Jimmy, um, because where where is the talk every day about everybody else that takes their life or the urgency to do step up 
helping our, our returning vets who are killing themselves at the rate of one an hour. I mean, wrap your head around that. Do we think about that when we send people off to war? No, what we usually think about is we can't make America look bad. I, I don't want to get political, but um, if you want to know some more of my thoughts about it, um, I wrote an article um, I was asked to write an article for um, Quartz.com. I believe that's the name of the website. Anyway, it's they're associated with Atlantic Magazine, Atlantic Online, and I'll put a link to, to the article. I'll tweet it or Facebook it or whatever, but it um, I think it puts my thoughts together in a mo- more coherent way. Um, they wanted me to write about... Um, about mental illness and, um, you know, they, they wanted to be written in light of what Robin Williams did, but I didn't know Robin Williams personally. And other than knowing that he had a father who was, you know, basically a workaholic who didn't take an interest in his life and wasn't, um, and suffered from, from mental illness, uh, I, I, I don't know what was going through his mind. And I think to, try to imagine what it was um, is a really dangerous tightrope to to walk. So I basically shared about my um, struggles with suicidal thoughts and how ironic that it was for me when it was at the height of my um, career and financial success, um, which I hope people begin to understand that material success has nothing to do with mental health. It will never, no amount of money will ever um, ease mental illness in a way that is lasting. It may bring excitement that numbs it for a short period of time as it did with mine, but it never lasted, success never lasted more than a week or a month in, in easing that feeling that I was worthless and my life was ultimately doomed and I needed to 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 end it uh, as you can imagine uh, by the way this episode with Jimmy uh, was record we were set to record um, in advance so it was just whatever you want to call it um, fortuitous sounds like an insensitive word to use um, coincidental uh, that we recorded on the day that uh, that Robin uh, took his life. Um, but part of Jimmy's story was his mom taking uh, her life. And for those of you that are tempted to turn the podcast off right now because you're like, oh, this is going to be too heavy, um, I encourage you to, to stick with it. Yes, some of the surveys and emails I'm going to read are a bit heavy, but the, the interview with Jimmy is anything but heavy. And that's one of the, the things that I want to... Um, counter all the sadness with, without minimizing the sadness, is to celebrate the victories when we do, um, as the walk is called, um, walk out of the darkness, um, because it is it is possible. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to um, Megan Parkansky, who's a former guest and is really struggling to raise money for uh, a documentary film that she is trying to make. Uh, called Metal, uh, Metal Health in America, and um, you can find it by going to Indiegogo.com and searching a Metal Health film, and it'll it'll come up. 
Um, so help her out if you would. One of the things that that she was offering to try to raise money for it was uh, for a thousand dollars to have a uh, forty-five minute or one-minute hour Skype session with me, where we would talk about whatever you wanted to talk about. We could chat. You could interview me. I could interview you. Uh, no takers so far, so it's been lowered to a hundred dollars. So maybe that'll help raise uh, raise some money. But again, um, there there you have it. I want to read a couple of struggle in a sentence surveys. This one was filled out by uh, a woman who calls, calls herself Ray. Actually, she's a girl, calls herself Ray is okay. She's a teenager, and about her anxiety, she writes, I can't focus on the now without constantly wondering if there's something significant elsewhere that I ought to be doing. Boy, do I relate to that one. This was filled out by Meredith M., um, who writes about her bulimia. To be the girl who was once homecoming queen and yet still cried herself to sleep. They must have noticed the bleeding knuckles, the times I fleed the bathroom with those knuckles reeking of vomit. To know my protruding clavicles can never be enough, yet still believing that a thigh gap will remove all insecurities. Snapshot from her life. My mom expects a college degree, a career, a daughter who is able to function properly in society, but I still have trouble making it out of bed. This was filled out by a uh, genderqueer, um, uh, transgender female to male who uh, calls himself, my cords are wrong. Uh, he's bi in his 20s about his depression. He writes chronic, severe, Lucy and the football uh, about his anorexia. Hunger feels like strength. Wow, that, that is so, it couldn't get any more condensed and profound than, than that, those four words right there. About being an abuser, emotional, I am pretty much a feral cat. Anger issues, I can research your weaknesses and then exploit them in order. About his dissociating, it kind of feels like I am operating a giant robot uh, machine suit, mecha suit with uh, clunky controls. And about being on the autism spectrum disorder, the world is a giant Walmart and I am the kid with my hands over my ears asking it to stop. Um, and then this last one is from, uh, Ren, who is in her thirties and, uh, I recognize her, her name. She's filled out some other surveys that are, um, really, really deep. She really pours it out about being a sex crime victim. She writes this body. Sure. Do what you want. Ren doesn't live here anymore. Snapshot from her life. Today is a good day. I bought all the groceries. I only sobbed in my car for 15 minutes. I didn't hit the bottle until 1 p.m., and I'm not hiding in my closet with a knife. Go me. Oh, God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. Cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got into therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I- 
I'm here with Jimmy Doyle, and uh, it's funny, you and I hardly know each other, I know. but it feels like I've known you my entire life. I know. We're both from Chicago, we're Irish, we're drunks, we're yeah. sober. Yes. Um, we're and, depressed. We're depressed. Um, I, I, you know, we're, my, my gig is talking about our inner crazy, and you're uh, a drug counselor. Yeah. Uh, so we're dealing with not only our own mental illness and addiction every yeah. day, but other people's. Yeah. But even aside, if you didn't do that for a living, I just, the first time I met you, I felt um, a, a similar wavelength to you. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, it was well. You were wearing a Hawks jersey, That's so right. that brought up a lot for me Chicago of good Hawks. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I actually uh, I used to love the Blackhawks. Do you not watch them anymore? No, I. It, for me, it was I. I don't really like sports that much. For me, it was okay. just hot chocolate and hanging out with my dad and my uncle and my cousin. Yeah. What What was your uh, relationship like with your dad growing up? Was he a drinker? He was a drinker. He was. Uh, Is he still alive? No. Okay. No. My dad died when I was 22. Okay. Okay. Did, did you kill him? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Good. Pretty much. So you so you have a resume then? I do. I do. Uh, no, I'm second generation American. So he was very, you know, the child of immigrants, very, well, no, was he, he whatever. On one side, I'm second. On one side, I'm third. He was very like, he was an alcoholic, but he never missed work. High functioning. Hold on one second. I'm just going to move this back a little bit. Oh, you're, oh, you're, you're, too you're, close. Well, you project a little more than our average guest. Sure, so, sure. So, um, that's the good. Theater. theater. That's uh, good. Yeah, he, um, my dad was, I've done a lot of writing about my dad. I'm actually working on a memoir now, and um, I've done one, I had a one man show called Must Be Nice that was about my parents and uh, just the envy and the jealousy we grew up with. So, um, envy and jealousy of, Everyone. Your family of other people. Of everyone. Yeah. And within your family towards each other? Yeah. If you get too high in my... Like somebody in my family will be like, oh, he's on a radio show. Oh. Is that a Midwestern thing? It seems much more... I don't see that on the coasts. No. Much. No, it's in... I should say New York and LA. Some of it is a little Irish. I think they call Very. it the tall poppy syndrome. The tallest poppy gets whacked. So yeah, very I grew Catholic. up. It's a very, very know your place. You know, my husband calls it going to the back door like a like a bog person with your hat in your hand. Huh. I don't want to. I don't want to mess up the good room. Like there was a room in our house that no one could go into. Pla- with plastic? No. Okay. We weren't Italian. <laughs> For Christ's sake! No. No. We just never went into the room. So yeah, that so I, I'm the fifth. I'm the fifth kid um, of how many? Five. Okay, I'm the youngest. So and there's eight years between my brother and me. So I was like a big accident. Your next, the next oldest? one is eight years. Wow. They're twelve, eleven, ten, and eight years older than I am. Oh wow! And uh, my mother was bipolar, as far as we know. We know she committed suicide when I was twelve. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So. That's why I was like, I'll do the mental illness happy hour. Um, Yeah, she committed suicide when I was 12, first day of eighth grade. And she planned it so I wouldn't find her. And of course, I found her. My father and I found her. So my father died 10 years later of a heart attack as an alcoholic. He just dropped dead. 
so we had a rough relationship. He, you know, having a gay kid was like unheard of on the south side of Chicago. I came out when I was 16. Really? Yeah, Catholic school. Oh my yeah. God, dude, you are a fucking revolutionary. Well, it didn't. High five. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Oh my God, Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, you're how old? I'm 48. I'll be 49 That's soon. That's unheard of. Yeah, that was 1981. And if I can just... 82, 81? Yeah. Oh my God. So if... I don't know how I can express to our listeners... Yes, exactly. ...how blue collar the south side of Chicago is... Uh, I was also raised in really technically the south suburbs of Chicago, but you were raised where? Well, well, no, I was mostly raised in the suburbs in Norland Park. Oh, my God. We grew up 10 miles from each other. I grew up in Homewood. Oh, my God. I went to Providence. (laughs) Providence St. Mel's? No, Providence in New Lenox. Oh, okay. Providence Catholic Academy. Um, Where'd you go? I went to St. Joe's uh, grade school and then home at Flossmoor High School for high school. Um, But the... Even today, when yeah. I go back and visit, yeah. there's a homophobia and a and a racism there yeah. that makes me so uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, isn't it weird too when it's people that go to church every Sunday? Oh yeah, and then the N word comes out of their mouth. Oh yeah. The- Do you know what's interesting though? It's that, and I don't know if this is your experience, but uh, I with all the Israeli uh, Gaza shit going on in the news mm-hmm. and stuff, um, I'm very pro Israel. I think Israel has a right to exist. And uh, that's not quite the way some of my friends seem to feel. I don't know. But uh, I grew up with this respect for Jewish people because, and and I actually asked my mother when I was a kid if they went to heaven and she said they did because they were God's chosen people. And then when I asked her about the Lutherans next door, she said no. So, like, we were so busy hating black people and Protestants that, like, we didn't have time to be anti-Semitic. It's not that I was raised well. We just only had so much hate to go around. And we figured the Jews, you know, they're nice. You know, they've my mother, they've suffered like the Irish. That was a good thing. There are very few populations that haven't suffered at some point. Yeah. I think the English, that might be the only ones. Well, they were busy... Well, think about it. They colonizing. fuck up everywhere they go. They colonize it, draw a line when they leave. And although you could say who who conquered uh, the Norman Conquest, who who was who was who was that? I don't know, but I used to have to. It was eleven fifty, eleven seventy. That yeah. was one of those things you had to memorize. Yeah. But I, yeah, so yeah, my dad. That was the I, Romans, I think, wasn't it? I, yeah, the Roman Conquest. I don't know. Hadrian's Wall. Um. So getting back to uh, you coming out at at seventeen, um, well, let's where where should we go first? Because we got the three big things. You know, we got the your mom's suicide. Um, Always a hit. <laughs> Always a big great seller. conversation starter. Well, you know, it'll get you a review. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a one man show and there's a bunch of one man, you got the suicide thing going for you. You'll get a review. Oh yeah, yeah, and a hug after the show. <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah. Actually, that's it's interesting because um, one of my first directors, what? No, it was Rose Abdu. Do you know Rose? Mm-hmm. She. We've been friends forever. Not personally, but I know of her. We've been friends forever since Second City, and she um, she pointed out when I started doing spoken word stuff in one man shows, she's like, "You've got to let them know you're okay. Like, you can't talk oh. about your mother's suicide without." couching it like before and after with how well you're doing now 
That's a that's an it's excellent a really good note. point. Yeah, because I think we we yeah we need to know that. Yeah, because that's a heavy heavy thing. Yeah. Um, talk about and when Jimmy says Second City, Second City is a very famous, very difficult to get into improvisation troupe um, in Chicago that, uh, you know, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, you uh, uh, you know, Tina Fey, a who's who. And you probably performed with some of the SNL people. Oh, yeah. I was were... um, Steve Carell's understudy. I was Stephen Colbert's understudy. Um, it's I'm, int- not, I'm not familiar with them. <laughs> <laughs> but you know my shit. Um yeah, when I was at second, it's interesting because uh, I got sober really young. I got sober after my dad died, and uh, you've been I, sober how long now? Twenty. It'll be twenty six years in a month. September seventh. It'll be twenty six years. Yeah, it's really amazing. But I'm a slow learner because I didn't get the part that you're supposed to change for like the first <laughs> ten years. So literally, like I've shared this with clients. I now you know work in mm. addiction recovery treatment center and i've said to them i worked at a place and i was sober but i wasn't sober i was dry you were you weren't emotionally sober and i was so hostile and so toxic to be around i got fired from second city at the same time they were able to work with chris farley (laughs) they were like well he's sick he has a disease blah blah doyle's just an asshole what were you doing that was I was making people cry. I was I was I was making fun of people on stage. I was I was acting out of nothing but fear and insecurity. And it was horrible. And it's the closest I've come personally to suicide was during that time of my life. It was it was, that's when I got diagnosed with depression. But my depression doesn't manifest as like, oh, are you okay? You you look a little blue. I'm the original lion with the thorn in his paw. I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of people don't realize that rage can spring from depression. Oh my God, yeah. For me, it did. When, oh. Right before I finally went to see somebody, yeah. I would have conversations in my car with people that weren't there, oh, yeah. screaming the things that I yeah. wanted to say, pounding on my fist like a crazy, uh, yeah. my fist on the steering wheel like a crazy person. Yep. And I didn't know that that wasn't reality. I have a brother. Uh, my older brother is also sober, and uh, he's a cop. He's a Chicago cop. He was also at Second City. and uh, So he, he has an outlet for it. <laughs> well, he had a heart attack. Did he? Did he, uh, in a- he didn't die, thank God. But in April, uh, Stephen and I got married uh, May 17th. And uh, my brother had his heart attack like six weeks before the wedding. And he would have died. He was at the police station and just was doing the treadmill. And he turned to the cop and was like, another cop, and was like, I think I'm having a heart attack. And they were like, boom. And from event to stent, Paul, that's what they call it. When they yeah. he got him, it was 24 minutes or something. But he would have been dead. And that's how my father died. We The cortisol and the, the everything get, that gets released when you're that rageful all the time takes a toll it'll literally kill you did your brother make it to your wedding he did and um you know my family is so funny uh in the way we deal with shit um he when i saw him i was at the rehearsal i was like oh you're here i'm so glad you're here and he goes yeah it would have really fucked things up if i died i was like yeah is he, uh, I mean, clearly he supports you because he oh, showed yeah. up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was no 
problem with my brothers and sisters. Look, the the good thing about something like a suicide in a family like mine is that all bets are off after that. There was no, I remember my father was trying to like bribe the coroner to say that my mother had a stroke or something. And he was starting to lie to people about it. And I remember my sister Rosie saying, dad, don't. It was just, it was just like, look, it's, it, we're done pretending that we're like perfect and Catholic. Rosie was getting divorced. You know, it, it was just like, no, we're done. She killed herself. We're fucked. Everybody went to therapy. I mean, they, they, my brother, Kevin, again, uh, when I was a kid, we were like, I was like 14. And that's when I started using and drinking, go figure. And I used to use and drink with my brothers and sisters because, again, it was a different time. And they could buy. <laughs> exactly. That's so pretty I sweet. To, I used to, like, smoke. Do- we called it dope. Now dope means heroin. Back then it was grass. You know, but we smoked weed all the time. And, and shit weed filled with seeds just, that would explode yes. all over your upholstery. Yes, ditch weed that you'd clean on a double heart brown. album. It was brown and yeah. powdery. Yeah, yeah. But it was inexpensive, 35 bucks an ounce. Exactly. Exactly. It was good. We, I had good weed. Um, but uh, I remember my brother, we were really high, and he said, you know, after all the shit you've been through, you could be a serial killer and nobody would be surprised. So you might as well be happy. I was like, all right. When, when did he say, when you, how old did he say? I was that? like 13, 14. Meaning... Because you, what he basically was trying to say, what, what I got, I mean, we were high. Um, <laughs> it made sense at the time. What he meant was, don't be defined by what's happened to you. Just fuck them all and be happy. And I really, I just sort of from that point was just like, I'm not going to be the suicide survivor the rest of my life. Now, I've had to go to therapy for the last 30 years, but, um, and I've done, all sorts of different kinds of therapy. I've done psychotherapy. I've done um, cognitive behavioral therapy. I've done EMDR for the post-traumatic stress of, you know, finding her and all that stuff. But I really, um, I don't know, in that stone moment, he was just kind of saying, just go be happy. So they didn't it's care if I was It's pretty beautiful gay. and yeah. precocious for a teenager yeah. to yeah. have that kind of emotional intuition and wisdom and, and to be able to be comfortable enough to share that with a sibling well he was 22 oh okay he's a little older yeah. i was thinking he was like you know he was at college doing theater oh so he was really in touch with. yeah yeah um what did you the the different kinds of therapies you've been through i want to i want to talk about them and what you got out of each one but talk first about the emdr therapy and what was that like going back and reliving finding your mom um I went, was your dad standing next to you when you found her, or did you find her and then he? F- w- she killed herself in the garage, and he. Uh, the notes were on the kitchen table, and he figured out what they meant first and ran to the garage. And I heard him say, "Call an ambulance." And back then, you had to dial zero to get an ambulance. And I dialed zero and got the ambulance. And then I ran out. By that time, he'd opened the garage door, the big door, and had my mother outside the car. But I, so I saw her body. I didn't see her in the car, but I saw the car. She also, um, we had a dog who was very old and she took the dog with her. So, uh, I actually saw that the dog was dead and that she was dead. And, um, every time 
I would go to therapy, there'd be the, okay, we're going to do, and I had her letters still. Um, the first time I went to therapy after I got fired at second city, I was like, something has to happen. And that's when I went on meds and started going every week in Chicago. And he had me read the letters aloud to him, uh, my therapist at the time. And we processed it. He was very psychotherapeutic. Um, the thing that therapy did for me, that episode of therapy, and it was about seven years was it helped me, uh, love my father again and then grieve him because he died before I got sober. So one thing that suicide survivors don't have is object permanence. What's that? Object permanence is when a little toddler's at the park and they go running off to go to the slide, but then they turn to look back and see if mom is still there. That's a sense of object permanence. And a lot of people from, you know, it doesn't have to be a suicide. It can be divorce. It can be anything they lack a sense of object permanence. Um, that's where a lot of um, borderline personality disorder comes from, from. The abandonment. It's the constant fear of abandonment. So uh, what my therapist then was able to help me realize was that my father, warts and all, had at least been there and had been some sense of support. And my brothers and sisters. You know, um, the show I did like three years ago, that I did in Chicago, the version of must be nice. I did there was a love letter to my siblings. Um, and I had them come and it was, it was really cool now. So that was one part of the, there was one layer of the onion that I was able to get to that at least, well, and was this in EMDR or in no, the, the, the EMDR one? came, uh, about 10 years ago, I was in a relationship with a guy who was incredibly mentally ill and very early on his own journey of sobriety. And I just sort of latched onto him and we ended up living together. And he would say things to me like, you know, I'm not really that attracted to you. And I'd be like, that's okay. You know, or I'm not really sure I'm in this. Sure. You are things that a normal adult with any sense of self would be like, well, then don't be with me, you know? So he left me and, um, I actually had another kind of breakdown. I was in Ireland for three weeks after that, and I kind of had a breakdown there. And I went back into therapy and went and got a different doctor and got new meds. <clears throat> and the therapist I was working with, I found through the D.D. Hirsch Foundation, which is a suicide survivors organization. And Mariette Hartley is a friend of mine, and she had said... She's a lovely person. Yeah, she's She angel. lost a parent. Her father committed suicide yeah. and she and I have known each other for years. And she was like, you've got to get somebody who will get to this wound. So I went to this therapist who specialized in suicide survivors and we did EMDR. Now I didn't do the visual EMDR. EMDR stands for eye movement. Desensitization. Reprocessing. Reprogramming. Reprogramming. Yes. Hold that thought for one second. I just want to put my phone on airplane mode. Cause when I get, uh, phone calls it uh it buzzes which oh, i didn't realize that. for the first uh two and a half years of doing the podcast i thought it was a bad uh a bad i thought it was a ground loop that. in the electrical system here in the building thank you to the listener that that sent me a uh, an That's email funny. so um so you you uh, mariette said you need to find somebody that can help you process this yes this wound so I went to a therapist who specialized in suicide survivors and uh, 
we did EMDR. Now, uh, the EMDR that most people have heard of is the lights, where you look at lights that go back and forth from one side of your vision to the other. Some people do it with uh, hand movements Mine in front did of your it with eyes. A, with a, she was very old school. She actually did it with horse reins. <laughs> Mine did it with headphones. Oh, really? And it was, I had a Walkman, a Discman, and I had a CD of tones. And I would put the headphones on like half on my ear and half off. And the tones would be going in my head as I was telling the story of what happened with my mother. And it was groundbreaking for me, but I don't think I could have done it 10 years before. I just wouldn't, I don't know if I was capable of it yet. So how did it involve your eyes then if it was your ears? It doesn't have to involve your eyes. It just has to involve the two polarities of your brain. Okay. And basically what it's doing is it's taking the limbic system information where everything is stuck and that's where addiction lives as well as in the limbic system. And uh, any sort of trauma that we have that's in the limbic system feels present. The limbic system doesn't know from past. And when we process it through EMDR with the tones or the lights, what we're doing is we're bringing it to the frontal lobe, the um, executive function of our brain. And we're saying it's not September 5th, 1978 every day, you know? And I found out a lot of things about myself, like, go figure, I was triggered by the smell of car exhaust. Wow. So now when I smell car exhaust, I know that that could trigger me and I could start to disassociate. And so I don't have to do it as much anymore. But what I used to have to do is, I would, if I smelled car exhaust, I would actually have to say to myself, it's August 11th, 2014. You're in Van Nuys, California. You're sitting with Paul Gilmartin, who's a very nice man. And if you need to take a minute, he'll understand. Like, I would have to go through all that. So the limbic system would have a chance to catch up. Wow. Yeah. It's really powerful stuff. Kind of like sitting down the caveman and going, putting yes. your arm around the caveman. Exactly. Going, buddy, we got food. Yeah. Chill out. Yeah. Got a nice fire going. Yes. Yes. Look at the nice painting you did on yes. the wall. It's shit, but I'm not going to tell you that. Exactly. Exactly. Although people will make a big deal about it uh, 10,000 years from now. Exactly. They will appreciate it. Exactly. You're the Picasso of your time. That is a bison. It's a bison, yes, isn't it? But for God's sakes, wipe your ass. Yes. Um, so, wow, that's... Yeah. So talk about then the, um, was that the biggest breakthrough in doing the thing? Uh, was that it, it allows you to, well, don't let me put words in your mouth. Talk about the, when you said it was, uh, you had a huge breakthrough doing it. What form did that take? And talk about any emotions that were involved. Was there any purging of emotions or was it more kind of intellectual? Yes. <laughs> and that's the beauty of it. It was crying, 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 and then being able to say, okay, I'm done crying. That was really sad. I started to be able to say, that's too bad that that happened, as opposed to carrying it with me every single day. So you were able to separate yourself from your story. Yes. And be able to say, it's in my painting but it's not the focus of the painting, it's in the background of the painting. That's a great way of putting it, you know. I, it, it's it's like that divide, it's like those tears, there can't be a divide. Yep. It has to be, it's, yeah. it's like a curtain of tears yeah. that has to come down. Yeah. The most painful stuff in my life, 
I, I know there's no way I could have recovered if I hadn't cried and cried and cried and oh, cried yeah. with safe people. Yeah, 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 definitely. And then it's interesting because through just sort of an accident of insurance, my insurance ran out. And I, I couldn't afford this incredibly expensive woman anymore. And then I went to someone else who was completely CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And coincidentally, is it odd or is it God, Paul? <laughs> uh, coincidentally, with air quotes, he was, his mother had committed suicide, this therapist. And he said to me one day, I don't consider myself a suicide survivor. I don't define myself as that. And I, I was gobsmacked because since September 5th, 1978, I have been, if I'm anyone, I'm Jimmy Rosemary's kid who killed herself and isn't it sad? And you can't expect too much of Jimmy, all that learned helplessness that comes from being a trauma survivor, um, the not being able to support myself, the always needing to count on somebody because I could never count on somebody. And, as, and if I used to like to borrow money from people a lot. That was my way of going, you do love me $500 worth. If you really loved me, it'd be a thousand dollars, like very mixed shit. And, um, I was just starting to date my now husband at the time. This is nine years ago when I was with this CBT therapist and we, Steven and I had a fight and, uh, we were actually in Tiburon, California and, um, Robin Williams took his life today which yeah. is, and he did it in Tiburon. Yeah. California. Which is also where we got married. It's yeah so beautiful up there but i was telling my therapist about this fight that i'd had with steven and i said you know and i was thinking i should just kill myself and my therapist said you can't think that way and again it was one of those like wait what i'm paying you to what <laughs> and he just said you cannot you you don't have that luxury you cannot think about suicide anymore and that was another breakthrough so it's 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 intellectual and emotional. I would imagine, though, some people would recoil at that and say, how dare you tell me what I can or can't do with my life? I think on another day I might have, but on that day, I knew that what he meant was... Let's not think about that. I think what he meant was... I had another th another therapist years ago who used to say that I, I had my battle shields that I put up in front of me. And one of them was I'm depressive. So you, so I'm not responsible. I think what, what that therapist in a very cognitive behavioral way was saying was I have higher expectations of you than that. And you should too. I see. And if you start crying suicide, every time there's any sort of bump in the road, there's no moving forward. And I think it can keep you stuck from doing the work because you begin to tell yourself I'm incapable of change. Mm -hmm. um, an important thing that I think, you know, people that are kind of emotional, emotionally illiterate will say, you just need to get over it. And then at the other end of the spectrum mm -hmm. is staying in that yes. state of victimization. Yeah. And for me and lots of people I know, the middle ground is have compassion for yourself, cry yeah. the tears, but then take responsibility for the fact that it's only that background of your yeah. painting, as you say, and move on because you now have a responsibility to yeah. those around you and to yourself. Well, you know, I work with addicts, so I work with a lot of borderline personality disorder clients um, or clients who 
have been diagnosed with borderline personality. There's a big discussion about, do you call them borderlines or do you call them people I, I with don't borderline? Think you, yeah, I don't think you should ever call somebody a depressive or a borderline um, because it, 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 you're saying that's who they yeah. are instead of a part of who they are. Yeah, so when dealing with clients who have borderline tendencies or who are have been diagnosed with that, um, it is a really fine line between hearing their problems and then saying, uh, we can't do that today. Like we have one client in particular that I'm working with who's under a behavioral contract and she's not allowed to be dramatic. And when she starts saying, you know, look at this mole, I think it's cancer. We have to say that's not part of our agreement. It's very interesting. It's the compassion mixed with the executive functioning. The, and the boundaries. It's such, that's, yeah. That to me is the sweet spot of where functioning is, is between boundaries and compassion because yeah. a lot of people, especially manipulative people, and I will include myself mm -hmm. as one of those, um, flourish yeah. in that, that no man's land where they want to manipulate, but just enough where they are short of your boundaries. Yeah. Because then you can get as much as you think you're going to get, but you don't realize you're shortchanging yourself because yeah. you're ruining a chance for intimacy. Yeah. It's interesting because I work really well with borderlines as a clinician because mm -hmm. I think through my years, I've been kind of borderline adjacent. Mm -hmm. I was like sort of on the borderline of borderline for years. I think a lot of people are, yeah. especially addicts, but go ahead. Yeah. So it's it's been really interesting. I um, I don't know. I keep thinking about what day this is. I With Robin Williams yeah. taking his life? What's, what's going through your mind? Well, it's just... You know, I, I, I'm, I've been through all this therapy. I've been sober for all this time. Um, and now I have, you know, a couple letters after my name and think I know what I'm talking about. And there's still part of me. It's like with Philip Seymour Hoffman. There's still part of me because I'm an actor that thinks, well, shit, if I had an Oscar and enough money to buy land and a house in Tiburon, like I wouldn't be depressed. I mean, it's just, it's just. Even I feel that way. Even though I'm, intellectually you know that's not true. Of course. It's just um, so fucking sad. Somebody, Jimmy and I were talking before we started recording that uh, when the news broke, you know, t Twitter was a fire with yeah. people saying things, you know, their hearts broken. I, all that stuff I completely understand. And I felt this pressure to comment on it, but I didn't want to. And I was like, why do I feel, why do I feel this push and pull? Because um, I was like, well, I think people that follow me and listen to the show, um, follow me on Twitter, expect some type of comment yeah. from me on this. But I don't want to because it's, I didn't want to because anything I would have to say about it felt trite. And then I realized what I really feel, which is that I wish I wasn't cynical that this is just going to be treated as voyeuristic. Um, it will be it will be shrouded in some, you know, where's our mental health system at today? Depression is a serious thing, but it will be done in a very lip service -y kind of way and yeah. no real change will be affected by this and that's what made me not want to post it because i yeah. felt like that makes us think we're moving forward because we talked about it because you know um 
you know, Dateline did a five yeah, minute piece yeah. on depression and suicide. Well, that's not going to fucking fix people. Yeah. A better health care system, learning how to talk to your family members, learning how to parent your, your, your child, learning how to listen to them, learning how to be a better friend, you know, all of that stuff. Um, we are in the emotional medieval times. We don't yeah. think we are, yeah. but 50 years from now, we're going to look back and say, how the fuck did we get by? We didn't, the average person could not express their needs or even understand what healthy needs were. Now, I'm not saying any of this contributed to Robin Williams taking his life. Only he knows what, what, it, yeah. what it was. But I think you and I both are on the same page that depression and or addiction probably factored into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he was, I know what you're saying, Paul, but I also, on the other hand, I think about the fact that 50 years ago, we wouldn't have had a place to go to deal with our alcoholism. I sure as fuck wouldn't be here as a married gay man doing anything or as a gay man on the radio unless it was anonymous. You know what I mean? But, I mean, we, but we are the tip of the iceberg. We are the minority. And and well, tip of the iceberg. That's a terrible metaphor for it. Um, we we are one percent of the population. The other ninety nine percent don't understand the ripples of untreated mental illness oh, and, and yeah. addiction. They don't understand that it that trauma affects your child, which affects how, how they are at work, which affects how that corporation deals with the world, which affects yeah. um, you know wars. You know, addiction, abuse, uh, all of those things are interrelated. You can't just say, you know, oh, it's that person that shot up the school. That's where mental mm -hmm. illness explodes. No, it's the workaholic CEO that, you know, by the way, which Robin Williams' father was. He was yeah. a, a non-present workaholic, yep. super successful CEO. And he had a, a, a wound in him that he talked about um, being a lonely child who was forced to live in his imagination. No idea whether or not that contributed to it, but as I said, heard myself say that, I, I felt com compelled to, to mention that. But the the ripples from it are are so far reaching, and I'm just tired of people thinking a five minute piece on a news magazine show on TV yeah. is going to move us forward. Now, and I'm sorry, I'm talking so much. Um, yes, we are better off than than we were but one of the the posts that you saw on replies yeah. to my post was a woman who said oh another dead celebrity f them <gasps> somebody said that on your thread yes yes on my thread Aye. and i didn't respond because i felt sorry for this person that they they must be so unhappy with their life that they think that if somebody has that stuff um they shouldn't ever be depressed which i know you both you and i get into that headspace of uh, that's how the what fuck I, yeah you just shared that but it's just that i think it and go what an absurd thought exactly well I, it's like after philip seymour hoffman died um i was i knew uh, i didn't know him but i know members of his family i know that um he got sober the same year i did in 88 and um obviously slipped but uh relapsed whatever you want to call it um uh, that Christopher Titus was on the morning zoo show on 95.5 making fun of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I got, I got into a Twitter war with him. You guys had a red haired triangle going. We did. Between Hoffman, you and Christopher Titus. 
<laughs> a lot of Catholic anger going on. It was just, it was... What was he making fun of? He was saying it's not a disease. Um, we shouldn't feel sorry for him. What about his children? He was an asshole. The fact that somebody does it despite their <clears throat> children is what yeah. you should look at. No, well... He doesn't want to. Titus doesn't. So we got into this Twitter war and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'd been working an overnight shift at the treatment center where I work. And um, I used to, when I worked overnights, um, now I'm a case manager, so I'm much more on the clinical side. But when I worked overnights, I was literally like holding their hands while they were going through detox from heroin addiction and, and, you know, taking their vitals and calling the doctor in the middle of the night and like seeing the struggle front lines of this disease in the front lines. And I just thought what arrogance Titus had to talk that way, but he's another broken child from a broken home. And I just, he's choosing to be angry about it. I'm choosing in my own way to change it a little bit and when you're feeling this way and i know why you're feeling this way because it is systemic it is uh it is the way our society's built is on you would be such a good therapist by the way you'd oh, be such nice. a good because we study things like like addictive systems there's a great book called addicted to war have you ever read it no but i'm i'm down with the uh, the title. It was a uh, required textbook. I went to Pierce College for addiction studies, and this mad man named Dr. Jim Cross, and this old man, just crazy, and he'd wear a beret sometime. He'd be like, hey, man, and you were like, whoa. And he'd talk about smoking marijuana back in the 50s <laughs> with the jazz musicians. I mean, it was just amazing. <laughs> he had a, a, we had a class on system, on addictive systems, and we read, it's a graphic book called Addicted to War, about the fact that our society is addicted to war. That, um, you know, we there's so many ways that addiction runs everything, and I, you know, I was splitting hairs today, like, well, well, was Robert Williams sober? Maybe it was just depression, and it's like, it's all one thing. It, you can't, that's why I started this podcast. You, it's a tangled bowl of spaghetti. Yeah. You can't separate trauma from addiction, from mental illness. Yeah. Now, everybody doesn't have all of them, but it's rare that somebody has just genetic mental illness or just trauma yeah. triggered mental illness or just addiction. So often you see two, three, four things that require yeah. a support network of their own and maybe a decade into doing working on one yeah. another layer is revealed of oh i, I have like, this buried thing that i didn't know you know it's interesting because 30 years ago if you went to treatment they didn't do anything about your mental illness they they said it was secondary to the addiction and they would yell at you and have you go clean toilets that old you know mm -hmm. uh getting sober movie what was that? Clean and sober. Clean and Michael sober, King. where everybody's smoking and yelling. And and now addiction science has grown enough that we still have to yell sometimes. But we try not to yell too much because the unconditional positive regard works better. And we, we have to address the co-occurring disorders because something like 87% of all addicts who go into treatment have a co-occurring mental illness. I think they're 13% off on that number <laughs> <laughs> myself, but the study said, you know, the literature says, and you know, my, my thought on what Christopher Titus said, if, if the, 
the few times that I've interacted with him, he seems like a, a, a lovely guy. And I understand that a lot of people feel that way about addicts because as addicts, we create a lot of wreckage yeah. and resentment Resent, in our wake. Yeah. And I'm sure he was hurt and disappointed by somebody who, you know, talked the talk but never walked the walk regarding their addiction. And well, I, un I understand that. I told a story on uh, Pepitone's podcast of... I had Adam McKay I worked with at Second City. He went on to be the head writer at SNL and then direct all Anchor of... Man and all, everything yeah. Will Ferrell does, basically. He and Will Ferrell do movies together. So I saw Adam somewhere in LA with Will Ferrell and uh, I was like, hey, how's it going? And he was like, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you because of all the damage I'd done as a dry alcoholic. Really? So I had to write him a letter to try to make amends for my part of what had happened and I was living in North Hollywood and I was waiting tables and I was broke and I sat down and wrote a letter to Adam McKay and I addressed it to 30 Rockefeller Center Did you really? and sent I mean can you imagine how these people feel when I go back and I say look I'm really sorry I called you a cunt I really shouldn't have done that on opening night right before places that <laughs> wasn't good when I would, I, I would make people cry. I was just, and, and yeah, people don't look at, I'm telling you, most people that I've tried to go back to and amend the situation, they've said, you know what, God bless you. And I accept your apology. And I knew you were hurting. Some people have actually said that to me, which is an amazing gift of forgiveness. Um, but some people have just said, you know what? You're an asshole. I don't care what your label is. You were an asshole. So just, I don't want to deal with you. Well, do they understand that you're not denying you were an asshole? No. You're apologizing for being an asshole. Yeah, well, you know, some people don't want to forgive. I suppose it depends on the way that you make, you know, your apology or your amend. Because if you, if you blame it on something else that's not really an apology yeah i would never do that yeah what i did is i would you know if i bumped into people from second city i would say hey by the way um i know i was horrible to work with and i'm really sorry that i made your time at the theater unhappy and if there's anything i can do to make up for that please just let me know but i just want you to know that you were really good and you're very talented and i'm sorry about that what does it feel like when you say that to someone? So freeing and so amazing. You know, the more I've forgiven myself, the more I've been able to forgive the Isn't people that... who quote unquote hurt me. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know, I have, again, you know, my brothers and sisters have very angry opinions about my father, our father. Um, I have great memories of my father. You know, he was an abusive alcoholic, but he was also, he was really funny. You know, I, I, I just, I'm trying so hard to just approach life with compassion. You know, one of the things I try to do with this podcast is to get people to that place. Because I know I need to get to that place. But as I say over and over again, it can't be done intellectually. And then you yeah. oftentimes beat yourself up because you can't get there. Mm -hmm. So you think you're either stupid or you're cold hearted. When in reality, there's a process that involves being vulnerable with other people yeah. and not wanting to make that amend because you're going to be vulnerable. And yeah. then realizing the greatest, one of the greatest workouts your soul can ever have is to make a heartfelt apology yes. where you're scared beforehand. 
Yeah. It is nothing strengthens your spirit like that. Talk, re- talk about that. Well, a really good friend of mine once said that, because he knew I was going to be making an apology to somebody like that. He said, think of it not so much as you, you know, throwing yourself down and going, I was a piece of shit. And I'm, in 1992, I was so angry and, and not making excuses. Hey, the, I wasn't on meds, man. And my mom killed herself. That was always my, you know, um, he said, think of it as giving that person the opportunity to learn how to forgive and how freeing that'll be for that person. Think of it as being of service to that person. And I was like, Ooh, I like that. And I've had to do it the other way around. Cause you know, some of my friends have hurt me over the years and they've had to, some of them have been brave enough to apologize to me. And I've had to say, do I want to walk the walk here of actually being someone who's forgiving or do I just want to be some asshole who hangs on to stuff? To use it as power. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people, what keeps them from making an apology is they're afraid it's going to be used against them, which I think happens in such a small percentage of of situations. Unless your last name is Doyle. <laughs> Has that happened? To oh, you? my God. Oh, my God. I mean, it, my... My sisters and brothers will bring up things I did it literally that I did in 1975 and just like to make fun of you or to to say I'm still hurt about that. No, but to leverage leverage a situation if they knew how to say I'm hurt, that would be amazing. No, what they'll say is, well, this one, (laughs) you know, that phrase, don't you? That one. Remember when McCain and Obama had their uh, debate Mm -hmm. and the big thing was that McCain went that one. It's like, that was my uncle Bob. I was like, I'm not voting for you just for that shit. You know? Um, No, my sister will bring up like, like when I was eight, they took me camping and a bunch of butterflies came out of a bush and I screamed. She'll still talk about it. Or when I knocked her glasses off on a boat and they were, they were $250 and I bought them for my wedding and Jimmy knocked them off my head. And they don't say it. They're just, I, I think they think that's reminiscing. Right. I don't know. But it's like, really? Are we, do you want to check? I'll give you a check for $200 if you oh promise. God. So let's go back to the, to the EMDR thing with um, your mom. Or did you, do you feel like we covered, we covered all that? You got to, you got to a place where you felt like, um, oh, I know what it was. I wanted to ask you when you were reading with the other therapist, that was it, Ooh. the first time you read the letter. Yeah. What do you What do you remember? Well, that was... Were you dreading reading? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had to like talk me into bringing it, and then I would bring it with me and and say, I can't do it this week. I would just carry it with me. And then I was like, oh, great. I'm carrying suicide letters around with me. This is fun. So... When we finally read it, um, it was, I think for him, it was a way for me to start the morning process in a healthy way to sort of, you know, the way I think of it is that um, it's like if you break your leg and then you set it yourself, let's say you're on a deserted island and you set the leg yourself, it will heal, but it'll heal in a way where you're still handicapped. And if you then get back to civilization and they want you to be able to walk normally, they have to break your leg again and then reset it properly. So I think that's kind of what was going on because, you know, she died and then I 
picked up. I started drinking and smoking weed. So, and then... My, There's not going to be any processing of those emotions yeah. when you're numb from yeah. getting loaded. And I was in such a reactive state in that, you know, I wasn't just acting out at Second City till I got fired. I was also in an abusive relationship with a guy who was also a suicide survivor. And, and we would go at it. I mean, that's a secret in the gay community that nobody really talks about in mixed company is that if it's two guys who are going to be violent, shit's going to get really ugly and shit got really ugly for us, you know, and that's something that I never would have thought I could say on a podcast that I not only was a domestic abuser, I was domestically abused. Like that's again, that compassion and freedom of forgiveness that came later on through a lot of work has me really not regretting my past and, and wondering, you know, what, what it can do for other people. Would it be fair to say that it wasn't about recognizing that what you were doing was wrong? Because I'm sure after you threw a punch, you knew it was wrong. It, yeah. was, it was about taking some of the coal out of the thing that was making everything really hot so that you wouldn't feel compelled to, to punch somebody or what how did you get to the place where you didn't want to punch somebody your your partner or you wouldn't stand for them punching you I was promised by people I trusted that there was a world where I didn't need the armor and weapons that I'd grown up thinking I needed and I, another really good friend of mine back in Chicago, who was like a mentor to me around that time said to me, just keep the guns in the holster today. And I love that he said it that way because he knew that somebody coming from where I come from to say, take your armor off. I didn't know if there was anything under my armor, but what he would say is just for today, try to keep your guns in the holster. Try not to act out. I mean, my rage would come out in such ways that like, like, I have a sister who was arrested for assaulting someone because she parked too close to her driveway. You know, I have my brother who's a cop almost lost his badge. My, you know, we, we come from, you just act on your impulse. And so what made me stop was I stopped the behavior. First of all, I got out of the relationship. I mean, that was number one. And I actually had to put a restraining order on the guy, but I stopped the behavior and then I started slowly but surely getting the compassion and love I needed that I never thought I could get. And then I could start extending it from an amazing group of people that I met um, from my family, for better or for worse. They really do circle the wagons when things get heavy. Your bi- biological family? Yeah, my brothers okay. and sisters. Okay. But also just incredible friends, incredible support groups. Yeah. Um, and good therapists, good professional help. So you acted your way into yeah. it before, yeah. and the feelings eventually Yeah, left. I mean, I can still, like, if I have to go around one more Prius <laughs> on the fuck, what which is I, wrong with those I fucking... Which I drive. Okay, does it have a gas pedal? <laughs> Because any time we're going along, going along, everybody's doing 80 and the Prius is in the middle. That's great that you're not burning any fossil fuel. We're thrilled for you. But move it along. 
And then if you're texting in a Prius, you are responsible for my high blood pressure. <laughs> Do you see what I did there, Paul? Give me some seminal moments from uh, from your life that we haven't touched on or have we touched on all the, the, the big ones that you wanted to get to? You know, uh, I, I, I got to say, um, I never thought I'd have someone in my life that I could really be a partner with. And I never knew, like, again, to young people, when I talk to gay guys in their 20s, and I say, you don't understand when I was your age, we didn't know that there'd be such a thing as gay marriage. We didn't know it hadn't been invented yet. It's not that we wanted it and didn't have it. We didn't even know enough to want it. You couldn't think that far ahead. No, we, it wasn't a, it wasn't a concept. It, it was, you know, I was at the National March on Washington in 1987 for gay and lesbian rights. There weren't even, you know, transgendered rights weren't even considered. And we we wanted to be able to uh it was people with aids there was a lot of stuff about people with aids which is what we called them then um it was about housing not being kicked out of your house it was about not losing your job there was no it was such, about surviving not yeah, thriving yeah. yeah so um and growing up catholic um i became an episcopalian in 2005 and I wanted, and you know, most people who grew up Catholic who don't want to be Catholic anymore just stop going to church. I wanted like paperwork. I wanted something signed that said Jimmy Doyle is no longer a Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. and I became an Episcopalian. So on May seventeenth of this year, I married legally married Stephen in an Episcopal church in Tiburon, actually where Robin Williams died. Um, that is so seminal that I don't even know how to talk about it yet. I can only tell you that I was looking in from the outside and I never realized how much I resented it when my straight friends got married until I got married and I could be in the club. I didn't even know that I felt left out and disenfranchised. So that I worked so hard for that personally I did a little work for it politically, but personally to get to that place where I had a, a church I was comfortable in and a person who I wanted to marry, who wanted to marry me, who we, we wouldn't even consider. I mean, the fact that like we're so far from being domestically violent or it, he won't even smack my ass if I wanted to. You know what I'm saying, Paul? I'm saying I need a little violence and he's not giving it to me. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> wow, that. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to the moment when you were when you were getting married, and just what, how beautiful. I'll never. That, that, that is that you felt like you were watching yourself because it was so surreal. I mean, that's powerful. Yeah, it was. It was it was incredible. I love moments when you see the world change. Yes. Love that. Yeah, because that's the shit like today's been a rough day. You when know, I, with I, Robin. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I didn't when my, my one of my sisters called me and told me and I I was still in work mode. I can't 
I can't use my emotions too much at work because they need me to help them with theirs. So I was like, oh, that's too bad. And then when I got home, actually looking on Facebook, which is such a cliche, but I, I started crying. Um, I'm so sorry that I know what that feels like. I know that pain. And I'm just so grateful to not be feeling it right now. And I so wish I could have helped. You know, I love what you do, Paul. I think you help a lot of people. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. And they help me. Yeah. They help me every bit as much. It's a, it's a two-way street. It's totally a two-way street. And I love the feeling of sitting at the mics and getting real with yeah. another human being. It's the feeling I've wanted my entire life. But, you know, I thought it was going to come in the form of money, property, and prestige. <laughs> Who knew? What a fucking disappointment that, yeah. what a dead-end street that was. Because it's exciting, money, property, and prestige, when you get yeah. the tastes of them. But it always left me wanting more and feeling um, like something's wrong with me because it wasn't fulfilling. And I had no yeah. idea that my spirit was dead because all I cared about was myself. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. It's still a struggle to to not become obsessed with one's own self-pleasure. Do you, do you find yourself struggling with that? <laughs> yeah. Talk about that. Well, first, I mean, you know, not to be too whatever pepitone about it, but I mean, we live in a world, we live in a, a country that says, if you have this car, this face, this, 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 that, this, it's, it's a constant thing. And, you know, sometimes I do fear that I'm just deluded, but I know how it feels. I've had money before. I'd like some money back now that I know how to handle yeah. it. But, um, yeah, it's a struggle all the time. Like, you know, you know, being an actor, getting, you know, did I get the job? Did I not get the job? Stuff like that. Um, when I went to school, I thought I had failed as an actor because I had to go to school rather than seeing how exciting it was that I could have another way in which to use my gifts. I'm really good at what I do. I, I That doesn't surprise me at all. You're, you're so good at articulating um, your experience. And I think that's what drew me to you the first time I met you yeah. was the look in your eye. Yeah. You know, there's just a, a when I, come across another person who is a seeker yes and they have eye contact um that isn't inappropriate yeah <laughs> you know what i mean totally. um it's it's it feels like a warm jacuzzi yeah to me another uh, the same friend who told me about keeping my holsters or my guns holstered he said seek out those who search for truth and run like hell from those who found it run like hell from those who found it yeah was the last part meant to be uh, humorous? Yeah. Or, okay. Paul's not getting any of my pithy <laughs> no. sayings. I didn't. I didn't know if if I was missing. I want the seekers. Oh no, that part I get. But run from those who who found this. Oh, I see. Meaning people who think they know yes. the truth. I thought. I didn't. I didn't get that because the knowledge is in the seeking. I'm not very bright, Jimmy, even though I do a podcast. There's a lot of shit I don't. A lot of stuff goes over my head. I get it now. I get it now because, yeah. It's, Hockey injuries. It's a, it's a very dangerous place to think that you got it all figured it out. Oh, got yeah. it all figured yeah. out. Yeah. Um, any other 
seminal moments that uh, you wanted to touch on? I don't know. I think we got a lot here. You want to do some fears and loves? Sure. Uh, I'm afraid that now that I'm happy and married, I'm going to wake up next to my husband's corpse. Wow. You, you right out of the gate. Yeah. You took your guns out of the holster. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid of, of watching my dogs decline in health because they're 11 and 10. Oh. And they both still got, you know, fair amount of energy and, but I just go ahead Um, I'm afraid of giving a client the wrong advice and then they relapse and die you said you wanted fears Paul oh absolutely I have I have that one about uh, people in my support group that I'm gonna their their suicide note is gonna say Paul said yes (laughs) um <laughs> what you got another one? I have another. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my license uh, by slapping a female borderline who reminds me of my mother. <laughs> That's a real fear. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to get letters because you refer to them as a borderline, a, a client with borderline tendencies. Thank you. How controlling of me was that? I fear. I fear getting uh, critical emails from people, even though not a single one has yet to destroy me it's the anticipation of criticism and i think it's because that was the the silent tension in my house because my mom was just a machine gun of judgment good or bad it's that anticipation you know they say that when you were raised with a narcissistic parent you view the world the way you had that relationship with the parents. So you think everybody views you the way that yes. parent did. And so I'm constantly, it's a lot of times why I put myself down is because I want to, I want to put myself down before you get the chance oh. to, because it hurts less when I do it. Wow. So I'm afraid. Um, I got a really, really intense email from somebody who did not like how we handled uh, a recent episode. And... And I wrote them back, and I didn't. I didn't lose my temper because I understood that they were, they were hurting. Mm. And uh, and I'm, I'm I'll probably read it on the podcast. But when I read those first, you know, where it goes from, you know, here's a couple of nice things. However, I can Ooh. feel I feel my stomach tighten when they get to the however, because I'm like, oh, here it comes. Here's the here's the truth that I'm that I had never thought about before. That's going to make me realize yes i am a terrible person wow how's that for a long fear that's a that that's a good fear i'm afraid of being destroyed by criticism wow that i will i will suddenly realize i'm so much worse of a person than i think i am yeah. you're so not <laughs> but did you tell your tell your crazy uh, brain tell your limbic system sitting in its hello cave. Yeah. in its cave <laughs> your turn <laughs> uh I'm afraid that when I write my book, my brothers and sisters will never speak to me again. Wow, that's intense. Because I really, and then there's another fear I wrote down, which is I'm afraid I'll never write my book. So I walk between this thing. You're fucked. Yeah. You're fucked. Yeah. And it's a very, uh, it's that, that we started with the tall poppy syndrome. It's the, 
Airs and Graces. Oh, your story's worth a book, is it? Oh, well, I could write a book. I could write a book about you and the butterflies, couldn't I? (laughs) Knocking my glasses off into Lake Michigan. There's a book. Um... I'm afraid that most of us are going to die from Ebola. Really? That's just a fear. It's it's not like every second, but every time I read a, a news article about it, I'm like, this. it's been a while since we had a plague. <laughs> We're due. Sorry to anybody out there that has anxiety, but that... I should say, that's not the rational executive function of my brain. That's my limbic brain that feels like things are too good. You know, Things are too good in your life. You need to, your stomach lining needs to slough off out your asshole in your mouth. Well, see, that's interesting because one of my fears has always been that I would get AIDS, which obviously I came out in 81. It was like... Good timing. (laughs) Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, you know, there was a horrible joke back then, which was, Mom, Mom, Dad, I've got good news. I've got bad news. They said, what's the good? No, the bad news is I'm gay. The good news is I'm dying. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Um, I was always afraid of getting AIDS. Always, always, always. Like to the point where like I'd be driving and I'd think if this light stays green, I don't have AIDS. Wow. Yeah. And, um, Did you have a lot of unprotected sex? Did you? No. Even this e- is when I wasn't having any sex so practically. You, you, so you had seven years though of getting loaded and being potentially sexually active, right? Because you got sober. Oh in no, 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 yeah, no. I definitely in there. There were some unprotected moments, but it, nothing that unreal. And I think the test came out before I got sober. The first blood test, it took two weeks to get results, the first blood test. That's some sleepless nights. I got my first one in 86, I think, or 87 is when the first one came out. And um, it's weird because I just got a physical and they did my blood work. And I'm now more worried about like, you know, my blood sugar and my cholesterol. (laughs) You know, it's like new worries. But they tested me for HIV and syphilis, and I was like, well, it's good to know I'm HIV negative and don't have syphilis, but would you have done that for a straight married person? I don't know. Yeah, that's questionable, huh? Yeah. But I was still glad to I was like, well, I don't have syphilis. To be fair, you were wearing chaps. (laughs) (laughs) Your turn. Or maybe that was yours. Give me another one, even if it's not your turn. What is it? Um, well, I well we've already covered the AIDS fear. Uh, I am afraid of my depression. I'm afraid my depression, wi- and I'm not afraid of of commi- I'm not afraid of committing suicide. I'm afraid of the rage that I'll destroy my life again. I destroyed my life. The actually the only thing I can say to the people who I hurt so much back then is. I'm not dead, you know, which is small comfort to them because maybe some of them wanted me dead. But I look back at that point in my life and I'm like, I really could have died just just because the rage, it mm-hmm. just needs a little more push. Yeah. And that, well, that's why men are so violent when they kill themselves. You know, it's. Did you ever hear back from Adam McKay did, after you sent him the letter? Yes. What did he say? He was lovely. Um. 
Is that it for the fears? Do you have any more? Nope. Let's go to some loves. <gasps> I love falling asleep in a room while people are talking and doing things in another room. Yeah, that's a particular sound. It's, yes. It's like a weird ocean sound. Yes. Um, I love having a heart-to-heart with another Southside Irish Catholic drunk. Yes. Who is sober. Yes. Yes. I love it. Ditto. Yeah. Ditto. Um, I love smoking cigarettes in Ireland. Every time I'm in Ireland, I have to smoke. Is there, are you a, normally not a smoker? I'm normally not a smoker who wants to, sm- I, I will always be a smoker who doesn't smoke. I see. And what kind do you break out when you're there? The, um, what are they called? Silk, silk cuts. Those are fancy, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, they're I tasty. The, I think the queen brings them up on a velvet pillow, doesn't she? She arrives in a <laughs> well, carriage. Well, I know this queen doesn't have a pillow, but he enjoys a silk cut. Am I right, ladies and gentlemen? Um, I love a good documentary about World War One or World War Two. I'm watching oh. one right now on the History Channel called World War One Apocalypse. Because when it's done well, there's always some detail of it that you didn't know in the last documentary or yeah. bo- book you read about it. And the thing that I learned in this most recent one is that almost every head of a country involved in World War One was related. They were almost all That's right. cousins and offspring of Queen Victoria. That's right. And two of them looked exactly alike, uh, Tsar Nicholas yeah. and, uh, and King George exactly alike there's a picture of them side by side they look like twins isn't that crazy wow i love that i love i love shit like that yeah that's pretty cool yeah well this one is interesting because it involves the south side and cousins really i love when my cousin john picks me up at midway airport and we go to white castle on the way to his house Mm -hmm. what do you get doubles or singles just singles singles just I get like five or six White Castles, some of those crinkly fries, mm-hmm. and the orange pop. God damn it, you're Southside. Huh? I, speaking of Southside, and this isn't just the Southside thing, but it's the way it's decorated, a good paneled basement, <gasps> and the smell of it in winter or <sighs> summer. Uh, the, the coolness, when when the house is in oh air conditioned, you go down into yes. the basement in summer, and it's got that, you, you smell a little bit of the kind of the moist concrete. Yeah. And maybe there's like a Pabst light or something. Yes. Yeah. I just love like that. Like with the uh, dehumidifier running yes. in the corner. And and there's also that smell of a little bit of the outlet hose from the washing machine. Yes. yes. Which is yes. specific. And you see the little nylon on it that catches yeah. the, the lint. <laughs> yes. Okay. You want to hear something weird? Mm-hmm. This isn't a fear or a love. But Jane Lynch's grandmother and aunt and uncle bought the house I grew up. In on the south side, eighty mm-hmm. first and Costner, and her aunt still lives there. Her uncle died and her grandma died. Her aunt still lives there. I can go to the house that I live from birth to eight, and go into the basement, and the same extra fridge is in the basement from really? when I was a kid. Still working? Yes. Oh my god! It's Who like makes 50 it? Fifty years old. That should be an advertisement. I know, right? That. I know. Wait, what's another love? 
I love. I'm, I'm serious. Whoever makes that refrigerator, they should shoot you walking in to go get the same soda you drank when you were five years old and say, this is the refrigerator. I, that would be the greatest commercial in the world. And then I'd finally get another commercial. Then you get your SAG insurance. God Call them. damn it. Call them. I will. I want 10%. I love being able to nap in a cold room. Very cold That's room good. with a blanket. Mm-hmm. I like that when the air conditioning's yes. on, but you also get a blanket. Yes. Which is probably not very global friendly. But, yeah, fuck it. Um, I love when I kiss Herbert and his lip moves up just a little bit Ooh. and my lips touch one of his fangs. Oh. So, I know that's gross as some non-dog people out. Why but, isn't he yeah. here? Herbert? Oh, he's, they both of them are petrified to leave the house. Oh. They like the backyard, but no, they're not travelers. I love watching, my husband's very quiet, and I love watching a group of people who doesn't know him well when he says something fucking geniusly witty, and they all realize at the exact same time how brilliant he is. Oh, that's sweet. I love that. I love walking into Hugo's on a Friday or Saturday night yes. and seeing you two with Eddie Pepitone and his wife, Karen. Yes. Uh, wife or girlfriend? Wife. wife. They got married. Yeah. Um, the four of you having dinner and laughing and coming up and and saying hi to you guys and just feeling that warm, positive energy. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, too. Yeah. Hugo's is the great, is a good place. Wait, where's where's my, I'm, I know I have more loves, don't I? Did I write more fears than loves? That's very telling. <laughs> That's okay. Let's do one more each. We'll we'll uh, improvise it or Miles Davis it as we uh, we like to sh- say on the show. Sure. Uh, let's do one more each. All right. We're both taking sips of water. I love um, the human spirit when it rallies after a tragedy and it brings people together closer together in a way that none of them would have predicted wow i love watching someone choose to not be an asshole that's a great one i was at whole foods the other day and this woman was being so horrible to the the guy be you know ringing her up and i'm sure the guy did it partly so he could keep his job or maybe mostly so he could keep his job but he chose to not be an asshole and he was really not and i actually said something to him afterwards i like that that's a good one that's a good simple one yeah and then she got in her prius and drove slow in front of you (laughs) exactly (laughs) texting jimmy doyle thank you so much for coming and uh thank you sharing your life with us thank you many many thanks to jimmy i told you that wasn't going to be a downer that was one of my favorite episodes. Um, and hopefully we're having dinner with him and uh, his husband on uh, on Saturday night. Um, before I get to some emails and um, surveys, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can go to the website mentalpod.com and make a one-time PayPal donation. Or my favorite, a monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. It's super easy to set up, and then it just takes care of itself. You don't have to do anything. Um, and it means the world to me. It really helps keep the, the, the show running. 
Um, you can also support us uh, by shopping uh, through our search portal when you're going to buy something from Amazon and then they give us a couple of nickels. Just make sure your ad blocker is um, disabled, otherwise the box won't show. Um, it's on the home page, right-hand side, about halfway down. Not to be confused with the search box for the Mental Pod site itself. You can also support us by um, going to iTunes, writing something nice, giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking and it brings more listeners to the show. And you can also support us by spreading the word through social media. That uh, that really helps. And it means a lot to me. Um, also, you know, I want to give a shout out to um, a couple of listeners who commented after the episode we did with um, Pamela Martin, whose uh, issue, um, among others, was um, living with chronic pain and fibromyalgia. And um, it was not my intent in that episode to link it to her having been sexually abused. Um, I merely mentioned that that is something that a friend of mine, um, one of my best friends, who is a, a pain specialist, had mentioned he sees occasionally in people. And when I mentioned it, Pamela said she absolutely believes that that was the case with her. And so I picked up on that thread and went with it. And if I gave the impression that I thought all case, cases of chronic pain were buried trauma, that was not my intent at all. And I know that some of these people who suffer uh, and feeling alone and in pain with chronic pain um, were turned off by that episode. And I just want to send them a hug and say, I can't imagine what it is like to live with the chronic pain that you're going through. And I hope someday to have a guest on that will help you feel less alone. Um, this is an email that I got from... Um, Peter C. And he writes, just listen to the Desiree L. Stage episode. Wanted to let you know that I understand your apprehension about uh, general practitioners prescribing psych meds, but I think you and your guest failed to take into consideration the fact that unless you're suicidal, it takes months for people to get in and see a psychiatrist, especially a well-regarded one. I know there are a lot of GPs who have long lost their bedside manner, who look at medication as the first option, etc., but there's some great ones out there who are compassionate individuals who take a more holistic approach to patient care, even within large healthcare conglomerates. When my entire system was shutting down due to severe anxiety and depression, I refused to accept that it was psychological, and my doctor bore with me and even indulged my desire to be given an EEG and a battery of other heart-related tests. I was 25 and in excellent shape. When I finally gave in and realized that it was all in my head, I resisted medication and took meditation classes, changed my diet, took vitamins, etc., none of which worked. I started taking Zoloft and entered therapy at my GP's behest, and my life completely changed. After eight years, a marriage to the most wonderful woman on the planet, two perfect little girls, and a tremendous amount, a tremendous progress in therapy, I decided, with full support from my doc, to taper off meds. Within a month, I was a nervous wreck, crying about everything from the fact that Led Zeppelin's first album was poorly received upon its initial release to the notion that Stevie Wonder will die someday. God damn it, you can't make this up. I fucking love it. During a stressful weekend at work, I developed insomnia, and for two weeks I slept no, no more than an hour a night and spent 20-plus hours every day bawling and shaking, convinced that I was going to die. 
I went to my GP and she got me back on an increased dosage of Zoloft and added Buspar plus Trazodone for the insomnia. I asked her and my therapist if I should see a psychiatrist and they both said they could refer me, but it would take months before I got in to see one. Within a week, I was feeling better and grateful not only for the life and family that I have, but for my wonderful, loving care providers. My doctor not only pre- prescribed the new meds, which she views as temporary crisis control, but exercise, meditation, and journaling as well. She also gave me her clinic email so that I can message her with any issues or questions I have without going through a receptionist and nurse triage first. Sorry to go off on a tirade, just wanted to say my piece and stuck, stick up for the humane GPs out there who look at their patients as people and not widgets on an assembly line. Thank you so much for that, Peter. I'm really, um, you opened my eyes um, to that, and and I appreciate it. And um, and you know what? Maybe that would be a good thing for the sponsor that we talked about in the, earlier for somebody that um, is feeling like they they need some uh, to talk to somebody immediately. Um, this is the Shame and Secret survey um, filled out by a lover already, a woman who calls herself one sick bitch. She is straight in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, I was 12. It was an older cousin of mine who I looked up to. I used to spend summers with his sister in their home. One night he came home drunk while everyone else was asleep and told me that his girlfriend had just broken up with him and he was devastated. He began telling me how beautiful he always thought I was and how all his friends felt the same. Naturally, me living for total acceptance from the opposite sex, since my dad never showed any, me any affection, I ate it up. And please, I hope any fathers that are out there that are emotionally distant from their daughters and don't give them attention for the love of God, understand the ramifications that it can have in their choices, although she didn't have a choice necessarily here about what happened later. But um, anyway, now I wish I could take that back because it was so fucking messy how I expressed myself. Anyway, she writes, I didn't misplace it for a sexual come on. I was naive and trusted him. Next thing I know, he started to kiss me. I was disgusted and felt like I had to go along with it at the same time in fear of hurting his feelings or, and rejecting him. I felt in some way that because he gave me all of those compliments, I somehow owed it to him. Plus his girlfriend just dumped him. I couldn't humiliate him further. I carried this theme into adulthood, by the way. And by the way, this that the way that she is reacting is textbook for children who have narcissistic parents who they wind up emotionally getting used to, to caring for and trying to carry their pain. Um, do, 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 do. I carried this theme into adulthood, by the way. Shortly after the kissing stopped, he performed oral sex on me. I had never... Had anyone do that up until that point, it felt so gross. I couldn't stand it, but again, I felt I had to go along with it. The phone rings. It's the girlfriend. He was distraught over. He tells me to leave the room. I feel like a discarded piece of trash. I sit in the living room by the front door. I hear him doing something in the bathroom. After 15 minutes, he comes out and sits on the couch to tie his shoes. I try to talk to him, but he ignores me. He then leaves the house. I try to sleep, but can't. Hours later, the phone rings, and it's my aunt who is working the graveyard shift. She tells me that my cousin, 
uh, is the one who molested me, is in the hospital because he tried to kill himself by slitting his wrists. With my uh, female cousin, his sister, and my uncle, his father, we meet my aunt at the emergency room. We visit him lying in a bed with his wrists bandaged up. I feel dirty in his presence and feel somehow responsible, like he did this because of what he did with me, but he seems to act like nothing happened, so I just try and forget about it. Weeks later, he seems to be avoiding me and never apologizes. Maybe he doesn't remember because he was drunk, or maybe he just can't face it. I think the latter. Uh, I tell my closest friend about it in a letter. My parents find it and confront his parents. Nothing comes of it. No apology or recognition of it has ever been made. You know, I, I think so often parents think it's confronting the other person that is the most important thing. When, yes, that may be important, but the most important thing is comfort your fucking child. My parents, uh, throughout the years, I have seen him at various family functions and, and always wonder what he thinks about what happened. He is on his second marriage now and seems to be fine. I don't think it would do any good to address it now. I do, however, know that it set the tone for how I would respond to the men in my life. I was a stripper slash escort for many of my adult years, and even in my personal life struggled to be a fantasy girl to every man I dated, all the while hating myself. It kills me to think back on all the things I allowed to happen to me. I can't take it back. All I can do is try and forgive myself for being so stupid and careless with sex, sex etc. After tons of relationships, I'm now 38, recently married, and finally feel like a healthy, functioning human being despite my self-hatred. My husband has helped a lot with that, but I had to come clean about my past, which was the worst feeling ever. Such shame and disgust with myself. But we are better for it. People holding secrets from your spouses? Take note. We are better for it. Um, Well, I should say spouses who are remotely healthy and compassionate. Uh, He needed to understand why I would get mechanical and have sex just to please him when I wasn't into it. I felt an obligation, a duty, a need to please even if I was dying inside, sick of performing for the opposite sex. I could go on and on, but that was my experience with sexual abuse. Thank you for for sharing that. Uh, She's also been emotionally abused by various boyfriends. I'd select men who were, of course, emotionally unavailable like my father, do anything and everything to please them, and because they knew it and were disgusted by my desperate attempts to keep them. Uh, In turn, uh, I, in turn experienced this as emotional abuse because the things they would say were so hurtful. I've also been lied to and cheated on, which feels lower than shit. Um, Any positive experiences with your uh, abusers? I had a personal close relationship with a man who took on my daughter as his own. Even though there was no romance between us, we became very good friends. You know, my fucking antennae went up the minute I saw that. It was like... You know, an older man taking interest in, and I know it can happen. You know, also a older female taking in, interest in a in a, a younger boy. But my antennae really go up when there's no. It, that, that just, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But yes, of course, this guy started um, molesting her daughter, and. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the point of that was. I just, I didn't feel like reading another two paragraphs about somebody taking advantage of a child. So I just thought I'd, I'd condense that. 
Her darkest thoughts, that a gang of black men with huge cocks anally ra- And I like how then I'm going to read this, because this is lighter. Uh, a gang of black men with huge cocks anally rape and torture my husband. For once, I'd like to have somebody have it be a gang of black men with unusually tiny cocks. Just to mix it up for once. Um, and now for the third time. Uh, a gang of black men with huge cocks anally rape and torture my husband's ex-wife until she begs to die, in which I show up to stab her repeatedly, cutting off her saggy dog tits, choking her and reviving her until I get bored, and then eventually slicing her from ear to ear while I watch the life drain from her dog shit colored eyes. Let's just soak that in for a second. That may be... You know, that, I got to say, that's like some of the darkest poetry I think I've ever read. I mean, that is, that's, wow, that is just, uh, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to read this survey, because it made me want to hug her, and it made me laugh at the same time. You know, I'm a professional stand-up comedian that for 25 years tried to find ways to express the darkness in me. And I think you might have topped, although I could have never said that on stage and not had the audience walk out, but that is, oh, fuck. Moving on. Darkest Secrets. I once seduced the man that my mom was having an affair with. It turned me on so much that I thought my genitals were going to explode. Afterwards, I felt like a total piece of shit and ashamed that I could do such a thing, but somehow felt entitled because my mom shouldn't have been having an affair in the first place. Sick, I know. I would never admit it to her to this day. No way. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, that I am being molested by my father. Not my actual father. That thought actually makes me sick, but a father figure and makes me feel nurtured and saved. Best fucking orgasms. By the way, I also have um, similar fantasies that are extremely powerful to me, where it's not my mom, but it is a um, mom figure. Uh, Also, I fantasize that I'm a gay man. I've done this with pretty much every sexual partner I've ever had and with my current husband. He doesn't seem to mind. Whatever turns me on, he says. I imagine that's beautiful. I imagine that the man is straight and that we're friends just exploring. Brokeback Mountain made me so wet. Also that my partner is cheating on me or fucking other women while I watch. Other people would look at these fantasies as sick, but for me it feels normal and it's not hurting anyone. I just want to high five you. Um, As far as I know, there was no incest in my family aside from that time with my cousin. I think it's healthy to have fantasies. Right on, right on. Um, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? (laughs) I would like to tell my husband's ex-wife that she is a worthless pile of dog shit uh, that serves absolutely no purpose in her children's lives but misery and chaos, and if she would just die, which I would gladly help with, not really, I know real prison isn't like Orange is the New Black, her children would actually have a standing chance. I cannot have words or write poison pen letters to her because it would be evidence to a court that maybe we shouldn't have any custody. I never tell the children this, by the way, but you better believe that she doesn't hold back and adds nothing but lies to it all. So creatively, I might add. 
What, if anything, do you wish for? For my husband's ex-wife to die. My hatred for her is all-consuming. I know I need help, therapy, and support big time. My chest is so tightly wound right now just writing this, but aside from wishing her death, I mainly wish for inner peace and a better spiritual understanding of things, to have more faith in the universe, and to trust that everything is happening for a reason. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Oh, I love her. Uh, have you shared these things with others? Yes, and some people understand, whereas others... Either don't care because they've never experienced it or don't know why, what narcissism really is. I always end up looking insane when I talk about her because I have so much rage and the people that have spoken to her are confused because she plays it up like an angel and tells them how happy she is that her ex and his new wife are so great for her kids, all the while stabbing us in the back and doing everything she, everything she can to turn them against us. How do you feel after writing these things down? Lighter, validated, then I'm really not crazy. I mean, would meds probably help me? Yeah, but I have insane emetophobia, fear of vomiting, that I would never take a drug that says the side effects are nausea or vomiting, and pretty much all of them do. I know how I've chosen to respond to my issues, current and past, isn't the healthiest, but I do feel better after writing all of this. Um, therapy would be a great place to start. Um... Because that much rage, I think, is too much, even even for for friends, um, if if it's more than a single um, instance, you know, or a couple of instances. Um, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences that you are not alone. I think that a lot of people feel like they are the only ones that have felt this pain, but they're not. While each and every experience is individualized with unique feelings, the outcomes from these experiences are usually the same. Find a therapist support group, take this survey, keep a journal, any way to get it out. Thank you so much for that. That um, I know I laugh at some things that other people wouldn't laugh at, but regular listeners of this show, um, I think laugh with me and clearly we are not laughing at her we are laughing with her because we've been there um i have had insomnia i have had hate related insomnia before um this is an awful moment um filled out by fran baxter she's in her 30s and she writes i lost my husband to suicide a few weeks ago i'm so sorry he ended his years-long battle with chronic pain and depression on his terms, being kind enough to spare me from having to find him or identify his body. I forgive him, even though I miss him dearly. He's out of pain with a lot of people he admired and cats that we loved. A dear friend who was a lover before I met my husband came over today on his way to visit a relative. I wanted to experience intimacy with someone I trusted as a way of helping me grieve, and my friend was happy to oblige me. We had no set expectations except showing each other enthusiastic consent. I had a feeling I'd cry a few times, since memory triggers, and I did. My friend was as kind and loving as he was nearly half my life, uh, as, as he was nearly half my life ago. After the really great sex was over, I could faintly hear my husband's voice. See, I told you my cock wasn't as special as you thought it was. You came just as easily just now than you did with me. I couldn't help but laugh and share that with my friend. 
My husband knew me better than I knew myself sometimes, and it is awfulsome to know that he was right about this too. It is also awfulsome to be able to fuck another man again because my marriage vows have expired. That is so heavy and human, and I just want to give you a hug. This is an email uh, that I got from a um, woman who wants to be referred to as Thesia, and she writes... Um, I found the podcast about a month ago when a friend sent me an email saying I should check out Maria Bamford because I would probably like her, and indeed she is definitely now my life hero. Thanks in part to the podcast, which had all of the amusingness of her comedy with the seriousness that comes from knowing that it's not just for laughs. Um, I'm guessing you get weird emails with questions all the time, so... Uh, know that I know this is weird, but something is compelling me to send it anyway. Uh, the current episode talks quite a bit about suicide attempt survivors. I think she's referring to the episode with uh, Desiree L. Stage. Category that I cannot for the life of me figure out whether I belong in. I know it shouldn't matter to me. My experiences are my experiences, exactly as they happened. But for some reason, it does matter to me to know whether or not I fit into that box. It's basically the suicide attempt equivalent of something happened, but I don't know if it counts. And I am, for an unfathomable reason, emailing you, a complete stranger, to basically ask, does this count? I feel like an idiot. I can't believe I'm planning to send this. What happened is that I'd been suicidal for quite some time in the realm of five months, holding out for my family in a little bit because killing myself seemed like it would take more effort than I could muster. I had a number of plans, all serious, but none with a set date slash deadline. I very much wanted to kill myself, but I very much wanted to kill myself all the time and was somehow managing to not do it. One day, something in my brain just sort of snapped, and I tied a slip knot in a rope, put it over my head, and leveraged it over the shower curtain rod, which is bolted to the wall. I don't know what I was thinking exactly. I do know that I knew before I did it that I was doing something in a way that I could get out of it if I changed my mind, which is, I think, a big part of my confusion as to whether it counts. So when I could feel my heart beat in every part of my head and things were starting to get weird, I basically did change my mind, not totally consciously, not not totally unconsciously, and I got down and I shoved the noose in a drawer and never told anyone what happened. I didn't tell my therapist about it because she was already being very generous in what she was letting me get away with saying without making me go to the hospital. And then, when I was able to check myself into the hospital the next week, they asked me if I'd ever attempted suicide, and I said no because I figured it didn't count if you didn't end up in the emergency room. But then I also felt like I couldn't talk about what happened without a risk of them thinking I was lying. I keep telling myself that you get tons of weird email, and this is totally... This is a totally offensive question to ask. Uh, It'll just blend in with all the other offensive questions. And even though you know my name from my email address, you'll never meet me and it won't be awkward, right? And I wrote her back and I said, "Um, your email really touched me and I I just want to give you a hug because I'm so sorry that you were in such pain. And my thoughts are, 
you attempted suicide. You put a plan into action. You came close to dying and it scared you, thank God, and you changed your mind. That, to me, is a suicide attempt survivor. Anyone who shames you or corrects you is either in a bad mood or an asshole. What you attempted is every bit as heartbreaking and serious as anyone else's attempt. Pain is pain. Hopelessness is hopelessness. What you choose to call it isn't nearly as important as acknowledging the feelings that made you want to die and working on finding ways to cope with them. I know we need a shorthand to convey events, and it's frustrating to not have one that we are completely comfortable using. I have this, the feeling the more comfortable you become with your humanness, the less you will fear being judged on your syntax, especially as you heal and realize the most important thing to come from it is that you reached out for help are getting stronger and sharing your story to let others know they're not alone and that we can come back from the brink. Imagine the loved one of someone who did kill themselves hearing your story. Do you think for one minute they would think anything other than, thank God she changed her mind? Do you think a single loved one would say, ick, what an exaggerator? No, because they see that you were hurting just like the person they loved. Their overwhelming feeling would probably be to want to hug you because they can't hug their loved one again. I will never get to hug my friend Wendy, who shot herself in 2001, but you're still here to let us know how you got to that place so we can help. And I get to email you, and that is a good thing. And I want to read two more things. Two more awfulsome moments. This is from Sarah, and she writes, uh, she's in her 30s, she writes, my younger brother was diagnosed, and this one is, this this one's dark, but you know, this whole show is, uh, or I should say all of these surveys are, are, are pretty dark, but if you've listened this far, you're a trooper. My younger brother was diagnosed as a juvenile delinquent at age 15. He spent the next 10 years of his life being re-diagnosed, medicated, hospitalized, etc. until he took his life. His final diagnoses included clinical depression, OCD, and possible schizophrenia. He left a nice note full of love and even tidied up his place so we wouldn't have to deal with a bunch of empty pizza boxes, slurpy cups, and beer cans. That is awfulsome in itself. I spent a lot of time worrying slash fantasizing that he would kill himself, and I thought I'd be less shocked, but it was fucking bad. I wanted to do it too. I lost my shit. He truly was my best friend. Kind of a fucked up and majorly codependent relationship there. That's a whole other thing, though. This awful moment happened when I got his official autopsy results. There was a 0% blood alcohol level. He was on meds at the time, but he also self-medicated and drowned the crazy with alcohol. I was so fucking relieved that he was clear when he made that choice. I've never been angry at him for taking his life. It was his to take, and who the fuck am I to ask him to stay in the hell he was living in? Of course, it would have been better if there was a med or therapy or religion or philosophy or something that worked for him. I don't wish he was never sick in the first place either. I feel like our illnesses are part of who and what we are, right? I could go on and on. I need to get back to some talk therapy. Ha ha. Fuck. Thank you for that. And finally, and how do we not end on this guy's name? This whole episode, Hitler's mustache. God, do I love you guys. God, do I love you guys. You just, you just, there's just, uh, all the walls are down. 
all the walls are down. I've wanted it my whole life in communicating with people. He is in his 20s and his awfulsome moment, he writes, you know those moods where you haven't had enough sleep and you go back and forth between being pissed off and giggly? I was in one of those moods. The difference between a normal exhausted mood swinging morning was that I had also been suicidal for months and was developing regularly erratic behavior. I was being transported to a metal to a hospital's mental health ward after spending a mostly sleepless night in an emergency holding facility. An ambulance came and they informed me that they would have to strap me down to a gurney. I think that it was some kind of handcuffing or arm strapping to the bed. Um, I just knew that I had enough freedom to raise my hand and flip off the cars behind us as we rode to the hospital. I don't know if they could see what I was doing, but I found it pretty amusing. Anyway, we get to the hospital and we go to the floor that contains the mental health ward. I'm being pushed, tired-eyed and crazy-brained, through a busy hospital. The objective is to get me to the mental ward, but we cannot find it. The two EMTs took me to where the mental health ward is supposed to be past a counter with a young, attractive nurse sitting at it. But that's, uh, but that is the civilian entrance to the ward. Patients have to use the VIP entrance someplace else. So they take me back the direction we came, past the cute nurse. Hello again, I thought, wheeling me around. Still can't find out where the hell I'm supposed to be. They had to go back and ask for clarification. They wheeled me all around the hospital, up and down elevators, down and around hallways, passing doctors and family members and nurses and children. They wheeled me past the same counter with the cute nurse six times total, three there and three back. I found it all very amusing and annoying. I laughed and scowled and yawned. I made rude comments about douchey doctors we passed in the hallways. The female EMT was so apologetic and embarrassed. I was kind of just along for the ride. Eventually, they stuck me in the hallway while they went to get the accurate information. So I sat there, dirty and wild-eyed, watching the people go by, looking at me, not unkindly, but still with the sense of, oh, this is slightly different. It was a farce, filled with confusion, doors opening and closing, back and forth and in and out and up and down, and I was handcuffed to a gurney, wondering about the odds and ability of making an escape. It was a rough day, a rough week, a rough month, but eventually we found our way to the metal ward and later I had mashed potatoes for dinner. I enjoy that memory. Ah, oh, that is that is awfulsome. Thank you for that. And um I hope if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, um I I hope to God this week can be a a, a touchstone for growth for a lot of us. Um, I just, I, I just hope it. I hope we can start commuting, communicating better, and we can improve the emotional illiteracy not only in this country but in the, in the, in the world, um, because we don't realize how trapped we are and how much we lack language to express our emotions in a healthy way, and that is at the source of so much. Anyway, you're not alone, and thank you, thank you so much for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in know some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.